This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about films. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On last week's episode, we recounted the history of A24 films, from their humble beginnings to the rise to the top of Hollywood's elite. Today's show is going to be a bit different. I purposely avoided adding my own commentary to the films I talked about, but all that changes as we are going to rank our top 10 films released by A24. But I won't be alone in this list making. No matter what the situation is, you can make it good. This is a joke to you. No. Right now, nothing is a joke anymore. Make one little mistake. Eventually, cracks appear. I'm not believing it. I was 23 years old. And now joining me is a film student who is also a big fan of A24 films, just like me. I've got Royce Benson here with me. How are you doing today, Royce? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Uh, this was a pretty pretty fun project where I, I was looking for some big A24 fans, and, and you answered the call, and we were sharing some notes back and forth about what our favorite movies were and, and things like that, and I think we had a lot in common, and, and I think you're a good match for this. Yeah, well, I'm uh, excited to get into this today. Great. Uh, so basically, what I'm going to do is uh, talk a little bit about uh, A24 movies that we've seen. We're going to do a top 10. And I also did uh, a survey uh, on Reddit and the A24 subreddit asking them what of some of their qualities in A24 movies that they like and what were their favorite movies. So I think the first thing is to kind of talk about maybe some of the homework that we were doing. Uh, I ended up watching, what is this, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight movies uh, released by A24 since I knew that I was going to be taking on this project because I, I figured I had some blind spots. I wanted to try to fill them, see if any of them would make my list. And as far as any sort of big blind spots for me, I guess really the biggest one is maybe like It Comes at Night, which isn't that big of a deal. Mid-90s, the Jonah Hill movie. Uh, Gloria Bell, which was the Julianne Moore movie, which I'd seen the original, which I believe was a, a Chilean film. Uh, mm-hmm. And apparently that one is actually better than the remake, so I didn't feel as obligated to watch it. But overall, I think I, I was able to cover basically all the, the big releases that A24 has. What about you? What was your homework like for this? So my homework for this, a big blind spot I had was uh, Trey Edward Schultz's filmography, his uh, three films, Kirsha, It Comes at Night, um, and Waves, which I was finally able to watch last night. Um, I had never really gotten to that, and so I was able to get those through. Um, I wasn't really able to do any rewatches this week. I've been uh, pretty busy, but I think besides that, I've, had, I've like watched a decent amount of their filmography. Um, and I think between the both of us, as we've discussed, I think we've been able to um, at least, you know, bite off a sizable portion of their film so far. Yeah, absolutely. I think in total now I ended up watching about 39 movies. I think when we started, both of us had said we were just over the 30 mark. So I think that's a, a pretty good representation of what they offered. Yeah, I'd say so. Now, as I was saying, I put out a survey. I just wanted to ask a couple questions to see sort of what the the temperature was around A24 and why people like them. So I ended up asking six, que- uh, yeah, five questions, sorry, about uh, about the company. And I just want to get your feedback on some of the results. So the first question was, what is your favorite A24 movie? Pretty simple question. And unshockingly, the results were were pretty widespread. 
there were two movies that came out on top, and that was Uncut Gems and Good Time, the Safdie Brothers movies. Both of them got four votes. I'm not totally surprised, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually be surprised if you pulled the people that said either Uncut Gems or Good Time what their second favorite movie was, and probably was the opposite one. Would you, would you sort of be in agreement with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I'm, not, I'm definitely not surprised as well that the Safdies are definitely coming on top. Um, because I think there's just like a bigger audience for their type of films, especially with the content they're trying to make. And I think they might be making some of their most accessible work, I think, for mainstream audiences, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, And then there were six films that got two votes each, and that was The Lighthouse, The Witch, Ex Machina, First Reformed, Hereditary, and Lady Bird. None of those are really surprising. I think if you were to kind of just guess what would be the most popular movies, uh, that group right there, those eight films, would definitely probably be the first ones that would come to mind. Yeah, that is. Um, I'm really surprised, though, throughout this whole process, um, Moonlight hasn't really been brought up, um, at least on a lot of top lists, because I know it's widely been considered like one of the greatest films uh, A24 has ever come out with, as well as, you know, it won Best Picture a couple of years ago. So I think that's also really interesting. Mm-hmm. It did get a single vote. Uh, the other ones were Climax, Eighth Grade, Green Room, Midsummer, Moonlight, The Florida Project, Last Black Man, San Francisco, and Under the Skin. So those seem to be some of the more, uh, I guess, under-the-radar picks for the most part. Uh, Moonlight, like you said, I'm definitely surprised that it didn't get a couple more votes. It makes me wonder if maybe people that are the A24 fans on on reddit are more into the horror films because those ones seem to have gotten more was the horror thriller genres um whereas the more personal dramas didn't seem to do as well yeah i think there's definitely that division i haven't really been like on the reddit circuit as much at least when it comes to a24 films but i've been on the letterbox um at least uh fan base for quite a some time now and it's almost like the complete opposite so it's kind of interesting looking at um, how two social media platforms can uh, have different opinions like as a group together, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, the next question I had was, what is one underrated A24 film that isn't mentioned enough? And the one that came on the top was Under the Skin with three votes. Uh, that's one I know both of us are, are a big fan of, and we'll get more into it later. Do you consider that an underrated film that you don't hear talked about? Yes, I would actually say so. It's uh, it's weirdly not talked about at all. It's uh, probably one of Johansson's best performances, if not her best so far. And uh, that'll be definitely interesting later to dive more into that and, yeah, why it's so overlooked. Yeah, you're not going to get any argument from me there. Uh, other movies that got multiple votes included A Ghost Story, Green Room, Room, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and The Rover. So that kind of has a mix. I, I wouldn't really consider, you know, Oscar-winning movie Room as underrated, but maybe because it was several years ago, that's why. But it doesn't surprise me to see stuff like uh, The Rover, A Ghost Story, and Killing of a Sacred Deer on there, because those are, are definitely ones that I don't really see mentioned as much, considering that their directors have kind of produced bigger films since then. Mm-hmm. I'd agree with that, yes. Mm-hmm. And then there was a whole bunch of movies that got only one vote. I'm not really going to read them out. Some of them were a little surprising, like uh, like Ex Machina and Hereditary. I don't really consider those underrated. But then other ones like Slow West, uh, The End of the Tour, Tusk, those ones got a, a single vote each, and, and that makes sense why they were voted there. 
The next question is, why do you like A24 films? I, I put out kind of a multiple choice within an other option. And so I was just sort of curious if I was able to kind of pinpoint the reason why maybe people like A24 movies. And um, there was two answers that really came out on top. Uh, the genres they distribute match my taste, got nine votes. And the diversity of actors, writers, and directors they empower got eight votes. And I think those two things really kind of cover, for the most part, why people like A24. Would you kind of feel that you fall into one of those camps or both? Um, I'd say I probably fall a little bit into both of them. Um, they're just, it's such a diverse film distribution company, like anything really the film industry seen before. And uh, they're obviously they have there are quite a momentum now since, you know, um, they started, which I'm sure we can get into. But uh, they definitely have a unique ability to be bringing stories to life. A lot of other companies haven't been able to. And so I think that's definitely going to lead them to success. Interesting. Uh, and then the, the next answer on the list was I didn't even realize that I was a fan of A24 films until I saw a list of a bunch of movies I love, which got five responses, which I'm not I'm not shocked. Also, that was a popular response as well, because I think even for me, it was probably several years into it, maybe even four or five years into their their company's history where I started to realize, hey, I'm seeing this logo at the beginning of the films every time that seem to be making you know my, my best of lists every year who are they and, and that was kind of when i was doing a little bit more research and realizing oh man these guys are putting out a lot of great movies and a bunch that i've seen and a bunch that i want to see and, and working with people i like so so it's interesting to see that a bunch of people agreed with that statement as well uh and then i was just kind of curious about uh how many a24 movies people had seen so i, I kind of was grouping them in in options so there's one to five six to ten eleven to twenty twenty one to thirty thirty one to fifty and fifty one plus because if you include uh comedy specials and some of the tv specials that they've done it's over a hundred films if you're just counting feature releases i think it's about 70 or 80 or something like that uh so there's definitely a, a wide range there um as we said at the top, both of us were kind of in the low 30s when we when we decided to do this. Um, but the most popular answer was 21 to 30 films, which got nine responses. So that seems like a, also a pretty high number for a production company that's only been out for a few years now. Granted, I was polling people that were big fans of their movies to begin with, like self-identified fans. So I wonder if that sort of skewed the results a little bit, that people are purposely seeking out these films. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think it might be slightly skewed just because, you know, once they really get into A24 films, they'll probably continue to seek out films like that and they'll go to theaters and stuff like that to support those kind of movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And then only one person responded one to five, which makes me question why they were taking this survey to begin with. And then one person answered 51 plus, which just like boggles my mind because there's just there's so many movies that. I'm not quite interested in, so that's a lot of dedication to seeing as many as they can. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then the last question I had was, what upcoming A24 release are you most excited for? I, I listed a bunch of options, and then I also gave the other one because they, they do have a bunch of irons in the fire. Uh, two answers came out on top. Uh, Saint Maud, which is going to be a horror movie coming out uh, later this year, and then The Green Knight, which was supposed to come out around this time. Both of them got seven responses. First Cow got five. That movie came out, and then it was pulled from theaters, and then it's going to be re-released in theaters once they open back up again. 
And then the Korean-American drama Minari got four votes. Those are all the ones that got multiple votes. Would uh, would any of those ones fall into your most anticipated? Or is there maybe a different movie that you uh, would be more interested in seeing at this time? Well, interestingly enough, I was actually – I had the ability to go see First Cow um, up on a trip with some friends up to L.A. I want to say about a month a, a month and a half ago – or no, rather two months ago, like right before the quarantine started – and um, the director was there, uh, Kelly. Uh, I'm blanking on her last name. Riker. Uh, uh, Ke- Kelly Reinhardt, exactly. Um, and it it was a screening up there, and then it had a Q and A afterwards. It was a really great event. Um, so that was awesome, getting an opportunity to kind of be like one of the first people to actually see it. Um, it's too bad it got pulled. I think it's a fantastic film. But uh, I guess to get back to the question, I guess my most anticipated. Um, would probably have to be the Green Knight. I love what uh, David Lowry has been doing over the last couple of years, especially with a uh, you know ghost story. Um, I guess a non A twenty four film. Uh, I believe it's the Old Man and the Gun. I think he's a really interesting upcoming director, and I'm, I'm really excited to see what he does next. Yeah, the Green Knight was was my response as well to that question. I'm really excited too. I'm jealous that you got to see First Cow. That's one. Seeing those reviews as they were coming out, everyone just glowing about it. I can't wait to see it now. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. Yes. And then a couple other answers it was uh, the tragedy of Macbeth, Zola, the Zone of Interest. Come on, come on. Uh, and then someone said the Safdie's new project with Nathan Fielder, which I'm not too sure what that is about. And then lastly, someone actually answered, I'm not excited for any upcoming releases from A24. So I wonder if that's the same person that did the one to five movies that they've seen. If they're just like, yeah, I only see like two movies a year, so I'm not excited for anything. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, you're probably right on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, that that was a pretty interesting survey. I just really wanted to, to, sort of test the waters of of what people were thinking because I kind of was able to formulate my own thoughts based on, you know, Letterboxd and Reddit and Twitter and and things like that. But it's really nice to kind of see some some actual hard data and not just my anecdotal evidence that I I get from watching social media. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so now we are going to get into this. We're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we are going to go into our top 10 films. I think maybe you guys can help me with Jamie. How do you be a good man? What does that even mean nowadays? Don't you need a man to raise a man? No, I don't think so. I think you're what's going to work for him. You just feel guilty because it's just me and you. You don't know what I'm feeling. All right, so now we're going to list our top 10 A24 films. We both created a list, 1 through 10. We actually sort of worked on this together where... Only one, only a movie can be picked once, so you're not going to see any duplicates. Did this twofold. One, because we want to make these lists a little bit more unique. And two, that way we can still jump in with someone else's pick and sort of say our thoughts if we had seen it. Uh, and just sort of spitball from there and not worry about having to repeat ourselves too much. So without further ado, Royce, what's your number 10 movie? Uh, my number 10 pick is actually the 2013 film Lock, directed by uh, Stephen Knight. Um, the synopsis, um, as read on over letterbox is Ivan Locke has worked hard to craft a good life for himself tonight. That life will collapse around him on the eve of the biggest challenge of his career. Ivan receives a phone call that sets in motion, a series of events that will unravel his family job and soul. 
Um, that so being my number ten pick, I was looking as I was like looking down the list. Um, this film actually surprised me quite a bit. Um, um, simply because it's mostly a one-man show in this case, uh, in the portrayal of Tom Hardy as Ivan Locke. He does the film is so well shot, uh, with the mostly shot in POV in a way that depicts uh, Tom Hardy's character driving from one place to another. The camera never leaves his view unless there's shots that are outside of the car, but the camera always stays on him, and the only interactions in really ability to ha- interact with other people is through uh, a series of phone calls he has. And so you don't really know much about him as a person uh, until you learn about like his family life, uh, you know, and his work and all those different elements. And it builds together to be quite a surprisingly emotional uh, performance from Tom Hardy. And one that I believe is um, severely underlooked in a uh, 24s filmography. Interesting. I, I actually, that was the last movie that I watched before we recorded this, and I liked it. It didn't quite hit all the notes for me, but I really appreciated what they were trying to do with this. Uh, like you mentioned, Tom Hardy's performance, it really was quite strong, but I think a lot of the performances that needed to be there to make this movie really work were the ones on the other end of the phone because we're not seeing other people's reactions or emotions or things like that. We can only base it on what their voice sounds like. And I think they all did a a pretty good job. Uh, The star for me for that was uh, Andrew Scott, who plays a coworker of his name, uh, Donald, who does a really good job, you know, just, you know, going back and forth between being, uh, super nervous and worried to uh to being confident all while kind of doing this arc of getting drunk and then sobering up throughout the night so it was a really interesting uh performance for that and there's actually quite a bit of uh big name british actors in this i was really surprised they ended up getting um uh tom holland right at the beginning of his career to play one of his sons which was pretty cool so moving on to my number 10 movie we've got 20th century women from 2016 directed by mike mills In 1979, Santa Barbara, California, Dorothy Fields is a determined single mother in her mid-50s who is raising her adolescent son, Jamie, at a moment brimming with cultural change and rebellion. Dorothy enlists the help of two younger women, Abby, a free-spirited punk artist living as a boarder in the Fields' home, and Julie, a savvy and provocative teenage neighbor, to help with Jamie's upbringing. This was, uh, this was a movie I, I really enjoyed. I think it had three really strong performances by the women, Annette Bening, uh, Greta Gerwig, and uh, Elle Fanning. All three of them did a really good job. But then also uh, the young boy who I'd never seen before, Lucas J. Zumman, and Billy Crudup, who, who most people probably know from things like Almost Famous or Watchmen. Uh, all, all in all, this is, works as a bit of an ensemble film and, and some really interesting stuff as far as cinematography goes. There's some great superimposed images and lens flares to give that California vibe. And it's it's both kind of a, a feel-good, coming-of-age story while also a bit of a, a heartbreaking drama. Uh, was this one that you were able to catch up with or no? Uh, it was, actually. I haven't uh like fully written up a review for it yet but uh it was actually i was able to see it a couple days ago actually with my mom of all people because now that we have mother's day coming up this uh weekend i think it's actually the uh it may be my new favorite mother's day film that's definitely rewatchable in the sense that i believe it has a great examination of the relationship between a uh, a son and his a son and his mother especially 
in the teenage years where a lot of change is happening. And so I think the film depicts that beautifully. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's maybe its most strong element out of everything. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think, interestingly enough, all of these characters, the five main characters, they sort of have their own relationships with the other characters as well, and they're all subtly different. And so I appreciate things like, uh, you know, Benning and Gerwig's characters being the two older women, having this more of a mature female friendship. And then uh, Fanning and Bennings are a bit more of a matriarchal relationship sort of thing like that. But, like, all of it is very subtle. And it's a great way to showcase, you know, different female relationships, female relationships towards men, both love interests and familial. And sort of it has a lot of really interesting things going on with the different dynamics. Yes, I would totally agree with that. All right. What's your number nine movie? Oh, well, my number nine pick today is going to be the 2019 film Midsommar, directed by uh, Ari Aster. It's his sophomore feature, and the synopsis reads, uh, Several friends travel to Sweden to study as anthropologists at a summer festival that is held every 90 years in the remote hometown of one of them. What begins as a dream vacation in a place where the sun never sets gradually turns into a dark nightmare as the mysterious inhabitants inhabitants invite them to participate in their disturbing festival activities now this was actually a film i was able to uh catch in theaters last year i was able to catch quite a few uh newer a24 uh films in theaters last year gratefully um but this one was definitely interesting for me uh it's uh the the two main leads are uh, played by Florence Pugh, who uh, plays Danny, and Jack Rayner, who plays Christian. And they're a girlfriend and boyfriend uh, that basically decide to go on this trip to, to trip to Sweden. Uh, Danny, without diving too much into what happens, Danny is definitely a very broken person who is struggling with grief. And that's definitely a topic Aster seems to have a lot of insight on considering that when he was actually writing the script for this film, he was going through a breakup himself. And you can really feel the authenticity when you're watching the film as it really goes into play with how relationships work, um, how those dynamics can change, how trust can really make or break a relationship. And especially with the allegory of kind of going like leaving a familiar place and being kind of misplaced and trying to find a new home, these this cult group that they basically run into uh, is initially kind of presented as being these very uh, friendly and helpful people that want to embrace them. But once you learn more about them, you start seeing a much more darker element. And I think it reflects a lot of interesting parallels with a film that came out in the early 70s, I want to say The Wicker Man. That's uh, kind of the vibes the film was giving off to me. But um Overall, I think it's a very fascinating look at how grief can kind of morph into some very dangerous things that can really break the relationships around us. Uh, did you have any thoughts on it, on the yeah, film? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge horror fan, and this is probably something that's going to come up a few times in this episode, so I'll try not to repeat myself that much. Uh, but I still did really enjoy it. I think I think most of it comes down to the fact that Florence Pugh's performance is the one that really needs to ground this movie. And she does a fantastic job. She's one of my favorite up and coming actors and she does a really good job with that. But I think one of the things that really interested me was the fact that 
they made a horror movie that basically takes place almost completely in daylight, which is something that we don't really get all that often because an easy way to hide something, whether it's jump scares or, you know, the, the fear of the unknown, is to cloak everything in black and have it take place at night and, you know, no power, things like that. Whereas this basically everything takes place directly out in the open. You can see everyone. You can see all the emotions that everyone is doing. And that's what I think really makes it work. Because if if all the key players, you know, all the people in this commune in Sweden weren't fully committed to this vision of, of bringing to life this community, then it wouldn't have worked because they can't hide in the shadows and things like that. And so the fact that they were able to achieve that is really a remarkable feat. Yes. And uh, really quick, just to go off of what you were saying, I think if anything, by setting the film in daylight and having very bright contrasts, at least with the camera work, it makes the film a lot even I'd say even more disturbing because it's something that's not happening in the dead of night in secret. It's happening broad daylight. And I think there's something to be said that that almost makes the film even much more unnerving. All right, coming in at number nine for me is Enemy from 2013, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, and the plot is a mild-mannered college professor discovers a look-alike actor and delves into the other man's private affairs. This is a movie that's going to be really hard to describe without giving stuff away, while at the same time, I'm sure even if I were to describe it, it wouldn't make sense, because this is the kind of movie where it's not about plot so much, it's about your interpretation of the plot. Uh, two things. Denis Villeneuve is one of my favorite directors. Arrival is one of my all-time favorite films, and and I can't wait for for Dune and everything else he's going to do. And two, I love the fact that this takes place in my hometown of Toronto, and you actually get to see, you know, the actual landmarks in the streets, and they say these things by name in the neighboring towns and things like that. So I really appreciated that Denis Villeneuve didn't try to hide that this was, you know, maybe New York or Chicago or somewhere else that he actually set this in Toronto. Um, and that makes me like it even more. That said, Jill Hall has a really tough job of playing these two characters who neither of them are really sure exactly what's going on. And they clearly have sort of similar lives and so it's much more about the the micro emotions and, and moments that he needs to be able to communicate to tell the differences because it would be a lot easier. We've all seen movies where, you know, uh, one actor is playing two parts and one of the parts is the crazy out of the control person. The other one is the quiet, introverted person. Those are easy to tell the difference between these. When you have two people who, for the most part, are sort of similar, but both very paranoid at the same time, it's a little bit hard to tell the bigger differences between them and and that's something that actually works in its favor in my opinion because there's a scene where one of the jake gyllenhaals goes to his mother's house and has a lunch and he starts saying stuff and you think it's one jake gyllenhaal and then by the end of the conversation you're like wait that doesn't make sense that's something that the other one was saying is this the other guy like what is their deal and so it's something that like was really sort of messing with my head and reading about this movie and different interpretations of it uh, really fascinated me and, and got me more into it. The only thing I didn't like were the spiders because I hate spiders. <laughs> yeah. If you don't like spiders, you probably shouldn't watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, I uh, that, that final shot, um, I'm not going to say it, but basically made me crap my pants. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel that. 
but was this a movie that uh, you watched and were like, what the hell did I just watch? Or were you able to kind of like appreciate the, the mystery behind it all? Um, so to be honest, I actually saw this a couple years back. So my memories of the film are a little bit hazy. Um, but from what I remember, I did really enjoy it a lot. This was back when I was trying to catch up on a lot of Villeneuve's earlier work as I too am also like, he's one of my favorite directors. Um, I think he's one of the best directors, uh, currently making films right now, but, uh, no enemies. It's definitely like a step forward, at least in the sense of, um, before he was making some French films and now he was starting to kind of, uh, branch over into the American market. But um, I think it's definitely uh, a, an amazing performance by Hall playing dual performances. I think it brings into, uh, it, it makes the viewer kind of consider like, what does identity mean um, as well as, you know, relationships and uh, how that can affect people's psyches and stuff like that. But um, I think I'm deaf. I think, you know, just talking about this film with you, I think it's definitely uh, in need of a rewatch. Uh, very soon and i'd be remiss if i didn't give a shout out to both of the the female leads in this melanie laurent and sarah gadon who both turned in really good performances as women who are basically utterly confused of what the men in their lives are going through all right so what is your number eight film my number eight film today is the 2017 film good time directed by josh and benny safty um this was like their first mainstream film even though they had made a uh, a whole bunch of shorts before then. This was kind of their first uh, debut kind of into stardom. Uh, basically, the synopsis reads, after a botched bank robbery lands his younger brother in prison, Connie Nikas embarks on a twisted odyssey through New York City's underworld to get his brother Nick out of jail. Now, the interesting thing about this film is that uh, the two brothers, one is played by uh, Robert Pattinson, who plays Connie, and then his brother, uh Who's played by uh, who's played by Benny Safdie, one of the directors, interestingly enough, named Nick, and it explores the the familial relationship between two brothers. Uh, Benny Safdie's uh, brother. It, it seems like when you're watching the film that he he might be special needs, and you don't really know too much about the brothers when the story starts. It kind of just throws you in the middle of the action, and that's something that the Safdies are incredibly good at. Ma- at doing they're very good at making i want to say like fast-paced thrillers that are nausea inducing that's the best way i can describe it i think this might have to do by the way they conduct their score or the way they brighten and heighten colors but what they i think what can be said at the end of the day is they make psychedelic films i think is a good way of putting it about people in situations that keep making the same mistakes over and over again and Basically, that's kind of what continues the plot on from there. They make it, and then something happens, and they're back where they started. So they don't really progress and progress anywhere. They're essentially always in momentum. They're always running. They don't have time to rest or even breathe. And I think the audience can kind of feel that too when they're uh, watching these films. And I think they definitely perfect that later on with their later filmography, which I'm sure we'll touch upon later. But overall, I think the Safdies, I think it makes a lot of sense why people are connecting with their films and why they're definitely getting garnering a lot more attention from uh, mainstream audiences. 
Yeah, I think you you describe their films very well. I, I think another maybe adjective of their genre would be anxiety, um, <laughs> because basically everything is just sort of ratcheted up. Uh, this was interesting because this came at a time where Robert Pattinson was. Uh, breaking out of his sort of former teen heartthrob Twilight era. And he had made a couple movies to that point that were kind of low-budget indie, stuff like The Rover, uh, Cosmopolis, Maps of the Stars, where he was he was trying to do something a little more gritty. But this was the first time for me that made me reevaluate him as an actor, where you watch that and you go, yeah, that guy actually can act and, and has a lot more to offer than maybe we were writing off for him before. Um, I was really impressed with this with this film he did a great job this movie is basically just like one anxiety inducing heartbeat pumping out of your chest to another everything is sort of just when you think it's, it's quieted down and everything is calm that's when everything sort of gets ratcheted back up again and there's quite a few moments where you just like unbelievable I, I keep using this word anxiety, where you, whether it's, you know, the, the fun house scene where um, the, in, involving the security guard in the bottle of uh, acid or uh, the the drug dealer heist scene, things like that. There's just so much going on where like every time you're, you get to that moment, you're, you're just basically dreading what's going on. It's, it's basically like cold sweats the movie. Have you ever been on your own before? No, never. Your last relationship lasted how many years? Around 12 Sexual preference? Women. Is there a bisexual option available? No, sir. This option is no longer available. Hmm. And the dog? My brother. He was here a couple of years ago, but he didn't make it. All right. My number eight film is The Lobster from 2015, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, In a dystopian near future, single people, according to the laws of the city, are taken to the hotel, where they are obligated to find a romantic partner in 45 days or are transformed into beasts and sent off into the woods. Lanthimos made his name a few years earlier with the Greek film Dogtooth, and this was his long-awaited English-language debut, and he cast Colin Farrell, Rachel Weisz as the leads, and the reason why it's called The Lobster is because Colin Farrell is a single man who goes to the hotel after his wife has died, and he says that if he can't find love within 45 days, he will turn himself into a lobster. It's a bit of a weird premise and hard to kind of get along if you don't just kind of go with it because this is kind of like this weird future where they have this ability to turn people into animals. But this film is kind of like a mix between super dark comedy and then also kind of horror-y at the same time. There's some thriller moments in it as well. Um, You never really know if a situation that's happening you're supposed to laugh at or not. And usually what ends up happening is you laugh and then you go, oh no. And you sort of like cover your mouth and you're like, oh, why did I just laugh at that? That's not something that's supposed to laugh at. And you kind of feel bad at the same time. And it basically goes on for the entire two hours. The performances are all super flat, as little emotion as possible. But from that, that's where you get this element of both comedy and horror at the same time because you can't properly read people everything is super flat and in this you know i don't want to spoil it but the final shot of this movie is one that you'll never forget and probably will like haunt your dreams as well uh were you a fan of the lobster um yes i was actually i um i originally saw it a couple years back but then i came back to it a couple weeks ago and uh 
Yes, it's de- definitely. I think Yorgos has a unique style, unlike any of his, uh, really any other director right now. He has this sense about him when he's making films and when he's writing the script that the characters aren't really living. The characters that are in the world, even that he builds, isn't meant to be realism. It's since it's a part of cinema, it's kind of it's it's in its own world and universe with its own rules. And that can be said about how uh, Yorgos uses dialogue. Dialogue's very flat. It's nothing like I've really heard in a lot of different films, but I think that's what makes his style unique. It's a certain flatness, like in kind of calmness, like you were saying. No one really uh, no one really acts normal in the in the most traditional sense. And that awkwardness can kind of play off as being really funny or really disturbing. Um, and I think that's really an interesting mixture. I think the film also does a fantastic job at kind of critiquing society's sort of obsession with relationships. There's this idea, I think, um, even though I'm not in a relationship myself, there's this idea that at least that Yorgos is going for is that society feels that people should be in relationships. And if they're not, there's something, you know, wrong with them. And I think he plays with that idea in a really kind of lighthearted way, but also with a seriousness that I think he's able to balance that really well. So it's, you could argue it's kind of like a really twisted and weird rom-com, I think would be a good way of putting it. But it's kind of hard to put my finger down on what exact genre this film would be defined as. If anything, I think it ex- I think it exceeds exactly what a genre is and goes outside of it. And that's what I think is really interesting about his films. All right. Uh, what is your number seven film? My number seven pick is uh, the 2018 film Eighth Grade, directed by uh, stand-up comedian of all people, Bo Burnham. Uh, Burnham, actually. Uh, the synopsis reads, 13-year-old Kayla endures the tidal wave of contemporary suburban adolescence as she makes her way through the last week of middle school, the end of her thus far disastrous eighth grade year before she begins high school. Now, what's interesting about this film is considering who directed and wrote this film, Bo Burnham. So I had known about Bo a little bit before. I had watched his stand-up specials. I thought he was a really funny comedian that definitely had a lot of depth to him besides just surface level surface level comedy and so when i heard it was first released that he was going to be making a film i was really excited about it he, he was going to make like a coming of age film about uh kind of what kids are going through and uh in uh kind of the current climate i guess you could call it um and this kind of goes back to uh elsie fisher's performances Kayla. She gives a very convincing and heartfelt one. And I think I, I think what's most powerful about this film is how it shows kind of teen adolescence. It it shows just how vulnerable teens are and how um, how much they're really going through right now, especially how it highlights uh, the use of sh- social media technology and how we live in now. I don't want to sound like a boomer in this moment right now, but we live in, you know, such a technologically advanced society where everything's based on, uh, you know, looks and it's all about, you know, position, like what's going on in your life. It's about, you know, popularity. But the scary thing now is that you can kind of communicate all those things over just looking at your phone. And I think Bo has a certain amount of maturity when he was making this film, kind of diving into a lot of those themes, especially about how, you know, kids are kind of, 
it's already rough for kids in eighth grade. You know, I remember it was hard for me around that time trying to find who I was and stuff like that. There's a lot of different problems going on and it's a very uh, hard time to go through. And I think that's portrayed beautifully through the film. It feels nothing but authentic. And I think that's the you know highest praise I can really give this film. Uh, did you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, this is one that I really loved. I was, I think I was surprised just like everyone else, this idea that Bo Burnham, uh, a white male in his thirties would be able to communicate what it means to be a 12, 13 year old girl sort of going through all these life changes and do so, so successively. I, I was definitely shocked at the amount of nuance he was able to input into this film and was one that that really worked well on me and was quite emotional you know uh i was never a a 13 year old girl but i do remember what it was like to be in that time zone i know i was in grade eight in 2003 which is much older than much older than you uh yeah and uh there, there's definitely some similarities and whether or not you, you always relate to the main character or not there's different people in different scenes where you can sort of understand why they're acting in a certain way and understanding probably how they're feeling at that time. And you're trying to navigate this world of you're no longer a child, but you're not, uh, you know, a fully hormonal teenager. You're not an adult that can make decisions on their own. There's so many different aspects. And so it's so interesting that they decide, he decided to make a film based on an age group that we, we often never really see in films, you know, Anytime you see family-friendly movies, things like that, kids are usually younger than eighth grade. And then for the most part, teen films are, you know, mid to late stages of high school, usually, you know, like 11th grade graduating class sort of thing like that, seniors. Um, So it's really interesting that he decided to basically do a middle school senior, which is something that that we really don't see. And I think he was able to sort of capture an era of youth that we don't really get to see all that often where it's so fraught with uh, uncertainty both in yourself and what you're supposed to be and what other people are expecting from you all at the same time of your body's changing and sort of betraying you at the same time. So that's all super interesting that he was able to capture all that. But I think what really worked for me was the relationship between the father and the daughter. The two of them worked so well together. And, you know, there, there's a there's a moment where they're sitting at the campfire in their backyard and it's just absolutely heartbreaking where she wants to sort of be mean to him, but also can't because she still needs her father and he wants to be there for her, but really doesn't know how to communicate that. And and all that sort of comes together really nicely in, in that little scene. My number seven film is Lady Bird from 2017, directed by Greta Gerwig. A California high school student plans to escape from her family and small town by going to college in New York, much to the disapproval of wildly loving, deeply opinionated, and strong-willed mother. This is a Saoirse Ronan, probably at her best for me. I'm a big fan of her, and she's just such a strong character in this film where she's sort of navigating. You know, we were talking about eighth grade where you're sort of in this period of uncertainty. This is happening at the end of high school where you're feeling like you think you know who you should be, and so you're trying to follow that path, but there's still so many uncertainties because you are young and under the the care and control of your parents and you know they're trying to do best by you while at the same time you're also trying to plot out your own life course so it's real it's it's another really interesting period especially taking from uh Greta Gerwig 
who wrote and directed this film, sort of basing it on her own life and then allowing Ronan to kind of bring that to life was really interesting. I think they, they did a great job together bringing this character in this world where, you know, you're you're trying to date for the first time, but, you know, you don't want to go too far, but you kind of do a little bit and navigating friendships and whether or not you're going to leave to go somewhere else to go to school. Are those friendships going to continue? Things like that. Are you a cool kid? You want to be a cool kid? There's so many big questions here that I love that are being asked and not all of them need to be answered. Just putting them out there in the world is enough for me. Yes. I would, uh, those are very strong points. And I would also agree with you that, uh, that Lady Bird, I, th- I think, would be a definite uh, uh, double feature to tag team with uh, eighth grade. Because like you said, like one is the transition period into high school and the next film would be would take place four years later and is the transition into adulthood and how much uh, people can change and kind of evolve from that. And this movie has so many great performances. I know I already highlighted Saoirse Ronan, but her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf, uh, is so good. And then along with her father, Tracy Letts, and then her friend, who's played by Beanie Feldstein, and then the two male interests in her life, Timothy Chalamet and Lucas Hedges, the two of them together are just so good. And I love everything that everyone brings to the table here. All right. So what is your number six film? My number six film is the 2019 film, The Lighthouse, directed by Robert Akers. And I think you're going to see a trend in my picks later on that, uh, unlike you, I, I used to not like horror movies, but I think A24 has really been getting me into this genre more than I usually would normally. Uh, the uh, synopsis reads, two lighthouse keepers try to maintain their sanity while living on a remote and mysterious New England island in the 1890s. Now, I think that's a perfect way to summarize this film. I don't want to I know it's a fairly recent film and a decent amount of people have seen it, but some haven't. So I want to try talking about this without too much spoilers. But really, when it comes down to it, the film is mostly about two main people, both named Thomas, funny enough, but one of them played by Rob Pattinson and also by William Defoe. both of these are literal forces of nature in this film. I think they command the screen uh, with ju- with such precision like I haven't seen really before in the last couple of years. Also, I think this is definitely a step up for Robert Eggers. I think how he shot it with his uh, director of photography, um, Jaron Blatt. Blaschke, I want to say. Uh, thankfully, this even got nominated for uh, Best Cinematography at the Oscars uh, recently, and so that was really cool. But I think at, um, what stems at the head of this film is the power dynamics between young and old, because that's really what it's about. It's an analogy about these two men struggling for complete power and control over each other, and how that's utilized in the film, I think, is beautiful through kind of a lot of the symbolism that's used throughout and a lot of even the Promethean kind of ideas it brings up of of kind of, you know, taking power over something. In this case, it's the lighthouse. That's what they want power over and how that dynamic works between those two, I think, is beautifully done. Yeah, I think you you made a good point. This movie is just so steeped with uh, both symbolism and sort of mythology. I would not be surprised if this is a movie that is dissected for years to come. The influence of 
of art and literature and mythology and just all different ways to sort of express a story is all present in it and in the way that it's shot and the way that it the characters talk and the music and the set design all of it really is grounded from something else and and that shows how much care that Eggers really brought to this story and you're right these, these are two powerhouse performances that you just can't take your eyes off of them in number six, I've got Green Room from 2015, directed by Jeremy Sonier. A punk rock band becomes trapped in a secluded venue after finding a scene of violence. For what they saw, the band themselves becomes targets of violence from a gang of white power skinheads who want to eliminate all the evidence of the crime. This is this is such a grimy movie that's just seeped in violence uh, in many different ways, both psychological, physical as well. And there's so much interesting things going on. I love the fact that when we first get introduced to this punk band and they play in the, the skinhead bar, they're playing a Dead Kennedy song playing uh, Nazi Punk's F Off, uh, which is a great introduction to them and sort of their middle finger. And then as everything sort of devolves into chaos things get worse and worse and in every new layer that gets added you just can tell that it's not going to be a good night you know it starts out with things like exacto knife blades and then machetes and then dogs and just like worse and worse things keep happening to this band and watching them try to survive with the amount of pain that gets inflicted on them is, is really powerful this is this is a great th thriller but definitely not a film for someone with a uh, weak stomach i would definitely agree with that it definitely holds some very 70s grindhouse vibes uh, and I think what's also rarely talked about of, of this film is Patrick Stewart's performance as kind of the leader of these neo-Nazis. He gives a very calm but very disturbing performance, even though he's kind of in and out of the in, in and out of the story. I think he really elevates the film. It's also an inc incredible way, unique way to set a film about uh, you know a bunch of punk rockers basically having to fight their way out of this area that's you know controlled by a bunch of neo-nazis i think that's a really interesting revenge tale because i think what everyone can agree on is we all hate nazis you know i think that's definitely uh i think i think that's something everybody hates so when you see what happens on screen it's very like gratifying in the most tarantino of ways and i can definitely see that kind of inspiration i'm sure jeremy had when he was uh making this film but uh yeah overall really enjoy this film and i uh i think it's highly overlooked all right uh so what do you have coming in at number five my fifth pick today is going to be the 2017 film the killing of a sacred deer uh by yorgos lanthimos now we've already talked about how he kind of yorgos kind of has been up until the lobster he had been building up a certain presence in his films he knows how to he has a very unique way of writing dialogue and story uh but I think he kind of elevates it in this film. Uh, the synopsis reads, Dr. Stephen Murphy, uh, played by Colin Farrell, uh, is a renowned cardiovascular surgeon who presents over a spotless household with his wife and two children. Lurking at the margins of his idealistic suburban existence is Martin, a fatherless teen who insinuates himself into a doctor's life in gradually unsettling ways. Now, when I first saw this film, I was uh, I was kind of taken back by how much Yorgos had grown since The Lobster. And if anything, I think he builds on everything that makes 
his movies so unique, his way how he frames the camera kind of above to kind of resemble an omnipresence, almost if, uh, you know, there's some other some other force at work watching all this take place. And actually, when I was doing research afterwards and going into it, it's actually kind of there's a lot of uh, Greek mythology allegories at play if you really look into it. And I think that's its most fascinating element is it's taking a lot of these, you know, Greek stories that I'm sure I grew up reading a lot of these uh, growing up, and I'm sure others did as well. But to see that kind of get these like timeless stories and then portraying them in the modern day, I think is very striking to take characters that are in ideas and philosophies that we've since used in pop culture today, whether we know it or not, um, kind of these basic kind of human truths about human nature and, you know, the the good and evil that's at a constant play within within all of us, I think is depicted very well. And I, I am a big sucker for uh, allegories and stuff. And I think this film does it incredibly well in the most disturbing and funny of ways. Yeah, this was a one that didn't quite work for me as well. I, I talked about how I love The Lobster, Lanthimos's earlier film, and I also really love The Favorite, his follow-up to this that's not an A24 movie. But for some reason, this was just a little too out there for me and a little too slow at times. I, th- I found the pacing just to be a bit off for me. That said, it has a lot of similarities with The Lobster, so if you've seen one of them and you like it, you'll definitely like the other one. Uh, what, what was your next pick today? When I was little, we used to move all the time. I would write these notes and I would fold them up really small and I would hide them. What did they say? They were just like things I wanted to remember so that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there waiting. Number five for me is a ghost story from 2017 directed by David Lowry. Recently deceased, a white-sheeted ghost returns to his suburban home to console his bereft wife, only to find that in his spectral state he has become unstuck in time, forced to watch passively as the life he knew and the woman he loved slowly slip away. This is interesting, you know, this movie literally is about a man with a sheet over his head, much like a, a poor crappy children's halloween costume and it's just about watching there isn't a ton of dialogue it's just watching and observing sort of the human condition uh rooney mara stars as the the widowed wife who isn't even in for most of the movie she's there for like the first third and then slowly time keeps passing and we get to see more things from the ghost perspective as new people move into the house and sort of what his influence over that has to be this is a very meditative film where it's not about the plot it's really about understanding what the passage of time means and and there's a there's a bit in the movie where um a large chunk of time is sort of passing and it's one of those things where if you ever start thinking about your own mortality you sort of end up feeling like you're in this feedback loop of like okay i'm doing this and then when i'm die i'm dead forever and ever and ever and ever and it just sort of keeps going and it just sort of like messes with your head a little bit and, and i know that's sort of like a universal thought where anytime someone thinks about their own mortality that sort of doesn't really end well for them uh but this is sort of like putting that in motion and it's a really affecting performance from a character who basically can't emote can't talk can't do anything is just standing there and you just feel so much so much pain so much love so much life and that's really what made this film work for me i believe it was actually my number one film of 2017 i loved it that much 
Yeah, and, and uh, when you were saying how there can be so much emotion coming from simply a man with a bedsheet cover on his head, I think has to go to yeah, a lot of that credit has to be given to David Lowry and how he presents it, because this could easily be a snooze fest. And for some people, some critics of this film, it indeed is. But for people that have the patience and the time uh, for a lot of scenes, as a lot of scenes are carried out very long, I think it's a deeply rewarding and humbling experience as a look at as a look on what exactly happens to us when we lose the people in our lives that really mean the, you know the world to us and how our lives can feel seemingly meaningless without it and uh, without those people. But um, although it, I think it can resort to times of uh, misery and kind of depression and a lot of sadness in those times, I think overall, I think there is a hopeful message and theme at the story's conclusion. Yeah. And I think it, it really is just sort of appreciating what you have and sort of living in the moment, uh, which I think are the key messages behind it. All right. What is your number four film, Royce? My number uh, four, film t- four film today is going to be the 2018 film Hereditary, directed by uh, directed by Ari Aster. Um, being his uh, basically debut into the scene, af- uh, the, the, the film landscape after directing a couple uh, shorts uh, when he was in film school, Hereditary, I think, kind of took the world by storm. I think this... I want to say this is the film that made A24 noticeable. Uh, Before I go into too much detail, the synopsis essentially reads, uh, when Ellen, uh, played magnificently, I must say, by Toni Collette, the matriarch of the Graham family passes away, her daughter's family begins to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry. Now, I think what's most disturbing about this film, and I think why it garnered so much attention, is a lot of people were calling it, I remember when it originally released i wasn't able to see it at the time in theaters but so many people were calling it the scariest film since the exorcist and i think the reason behind that is it took a lot of elements that it wasn't a straightforward horror film it was it it takes place primarily as a drama it's a family drama first and foremost that has horror elements infused with it and i think that's all in better service of the film because well, traditionally with most horror films, uh, especially if ones of you know later years, uh, characters tend to uh, you don't really feel for the characters. So when bad things start happening to them, you don't care because they don't have that much character development. But I think this film beautifully portrays the, the dynamics between each family members and especially uh, Tony Collette, which I must say was incredibly snubbed as a best actress at least for a nominee for this film. She gives her best performance of all time as a grieving woman. And I think, uh, as I said earlier, our, uh, Aster does an amazing job at portraying what grief do- does so- to somebody. And if left uncontrolled and unchecked, how evil can seep into our lives, whether we realize it or not. And I think there's so many scenes throughout this film that are traumatizing. Uh, there's, a, there's a car scene uh, that definitely is going to be stuck in my mind for a long time as well as the final shot i think it truly is one of the most disturbing and hauntingly beautiful horror films of the last several years this was a movie that i was putting off watching despite all the good reviews about it and i watched it and it completely messed it up 
And I loved it. This movie was fantastic. There was such great control of the camera and the staging of everything that uh, that Astra was doing. I was so impressed with it all. You know, you, you complimented Tony Collette, and she definitely was snubbed. But I think another performance that I really wanted to highlight is Alex Wolf, who plays the son. So much mm-hmm. of this story is about things that are happening to him, uh, whereas. Tony Collette and other characters are sort of changing their behaviors based on on new information they're learning. But basically, the son is the one that's being infected with all of this the most. And he has to be able to, to play this balance of both being terrified and slightly curious at the same time. And he does a really good job balancing that. And there's a couple moments, you know, where it looks like he's kind of being possessed that just like really crept under my skin and bothered me and now anytime i i hear the the tongue clicking out whatever that is it like <laughs> sends shivers up my spine now i don't think if i hear that at night i'll be able to sleep my number four pick is ex machina uh from 2014 directed by alex garland Caleb, a 26-year-old coder at the world's largest internet company, wins a competition to spend a week at a private mountain retreat belonging to Nathan, the reclusive CEO of the company. But when Caleb arrives at the remote location, he finds that he'll have to participate in a strange and fascinating experiment in which he must interact with the world's first true artificial intelligence housed in the body of a beautiful robot girl. Uh, The description that Alex Garland was giving when he was promoting this film was, uh, trying to predict would there be if Google or Amazon or whoever else uh, released a news statement, you know, five days from now saying that they have some new discovery, will it be that shocking to us? And this is sort of putting in motion of where we are with where technology is headed in clearly the very near future based on everything we already know scientifically, ethically, philosophically, all these sort of things. And he does a fantastic job of grounding what is essentially a sci-fi film into reality without making it seem out of place. This is essentially a three-hander between Oscar Isaac, Domino Gleason, and, and uh, Alicia Vikander. And the three of them all have very different things with different layers going on at the same time. They all have secrets that they have that they're portraying that when they later reveal their secrets, you can go back and sort of see the different layers of their performances that they're doing. All three of them are so good. And it's kind of scary at times. It's very thrilling. I love this sci-fi, you know, technological thriller ride that we get taken on. But right in the middle of this movie, there's this hilarious moment where Oscar Isaac and his housekeeper, who doesn't speak English, break out into a synchronized dance scene that just sort of like breaks all the tension before immediately going right back into it. And I just love the fact that they were able to include that bit without losing anything that they were working on. Yes, I would definitely agree. That's a fantastic scene. I also think a lot of what what's going for the film is based on the title itself, Ex Machina, which uh, in uh, Latin, I believe, is from the machine. And it's often pack, uh, it's often kind of positioned with Deus Ex Machina, which is God from the machine. And I think it's an interesting idea that it's humans building something else in our in our own image. We are kind of, in a sense, becoming our own gods, but it's showing how uh it's it's showing the idea that if we create something in our likeness will it grow to resent us and even hate us and even evolve past us and consider and maybe even starting to consider are we even uh in need of existing and must we be removed and i think what in a 
a lot of the, I think, shows like Black Mirror, uh, especially, and stuff like that really tie in well to this and to get the ball rolling. If, like, we have, we're at our most technolo- technologically advanced state right now, and is are we really thinking about the long-term consequences of our actions? Because there is going to be coming a certain point. I think we're at that point right now where what we're doing with artificial intelligence especially, it's irreversible. There, we, we can't we can't go back. That's how advanced we are. And I think this film horrifically portrays how that mindset can kind of get uh, bring us to some very terrible places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to describe it. And I think what's interesting is the way this movie ends. I'm, I don't want to reveal too much about it, but it's shot to be this beautiful ending of freedom. But then. I find that the more you think about this, the more sort of horrifying of an ending it actually is of what the actual consequences are of everything that took place uh, in the hour and a half that we just witnessed and and seeing how it sort of unfolds of what's going to happen, you know, five minutes after this movie ends is where the real sort of horror sort of creeps back in for me. All right. What is your number three film? Uh, My number three pick today is going to be the 2013 film. Uh, directed by Jonathan Glazer, Under the Skin. Uh, we briefly mentioned this earlier, and I think on that poll you took as one of A24's most most underrated films. And I would definitely personally agree with that statement. Uh, the synopsis essentially essentially reads, a seductive alien prowls the streets of Glasgow in search of her of prey, unsuspecting men who fall under her spell. And I think that's a that's a really good way of describing essentially what this film is without it's a little bit hard to describe uh, what exactly the film is without watching it. At its most basic level, it's in a sense an alien who takes on the form of a woman played by Scarlett Johansson, who gives a brilliant performance as this kind of humanoid alien that essentially wears the skin and essentially hunts down uh, victims who are male using her sexuality to lure them in. And she does this in a way where she has this van and she goes around on the streets late at night, you know, asking men for directions, being really friendly with them, you know, uh, offering them rides before she essentially lures them back to her lair where she, uh, in a sense, uh, disposes of their bodies for a purpose we don't fully understand. And I think what's really interesting at the heart of this film is how it kind of flips the societal norms of what we usually see. It's usually the other way around. It's usually men prowling kind of on women on streets. But so that's, I think one of the most disturbing elements of this film is even though this creature, we don't know if it has a gender or not, the, just the fact that it's a woman, there's something terrifying about that. She's using her look. She's using the vulnerabilities of the men she deals with. She's in a sense learning about how, humans act and are with each interaction she has and if anything you kind of feel sorry for her at the end of the day even though she is essentially you know murdering these people because you under you understand that she's doing it out of necessity but there's something about seeing humans she wants to have that same connection we do and if anything i think that i think that puts into perspective just how unique the human connection and need really is yeah, I think by the time your sympathy sort of shift because the whole first, you know, two thirds of the movie were sort of kept at a distance from everything. But when the when the sympathy sort of change and you're siding with her, that's when things truly sort of go off the rails and kind of get very scary. I think for me, the interesting thing is that 
it was basically shot like a documentary using people who didn't even know they were in the movie at times and they were able to add on this narrative layer with this sort of sci-fi CGI element to it as well at times. So combining both the, the fiction and the non-fiction together in this weird mishmash really worked well to kind of keep the viewer on edge and not totally sure of exactly what's happening because it feels real, but at the same time, you understand you're being manipulated, but you don't really know how. Uh, what was your uh, number three pick today? I've got Moonlight from 2016, directed by Barry Jenkins. This tender, heartbreaking story of a young man's struggle to find himself told across three defining chapters in his life as he experiences the ecstasy, pain, and beauty of falling in love while grappling with his own sexuality. We talked about this at the top where this was a Best Picture winner that seems to maybe not get as mentioned as much anymore. Uh, I still absolutely love this. The cinematography, the score, the, the choice of casting, the way everything sort of comes together is just so beautiful. This is a film that is just rich in emotion in a way that I have never seen before. And the fact that they're able to get, it's essentially the story of, of these two men six different actors to play them over the three different time periods and it be consistent and you understand who they are at this point in their life and why maybe they look a little bit different and how that sort of influences who they are just adds so much more to it. And, you know, this film is most famous for Mahershala Ali with his Best Supporting Actor turn, who's only in the first sequence. We only get to spend about 20 minutes with him and he leaves such a mark on what it means to be a man, a parental figure, someone to look up to, all this sort of stuff while being this complex role of him being a drug dealer as well is just blows my mind with the amount of layer and subtlety that they are able to infuse into this film. But really, I think, you know, the big star of this is the cinematography. This this is just a gorgeous-looking film where you can't help but feel everything got put into it. Well, I agree with you there. I believe the cinematography and even the score on this is completely spellbinding. Uh, spellbinding. It, it literally feels like it's in a fantasy at times, how it mixes the different tech, uh, colors, the color palette of, like, blue and purple to kind of give this kind of uh, a melancholy feeling sadly enough for me i don't feel like this film worked with me as much as it did for you or for even academy voters it the, the whole problem stems for me is uh the the main character he doesn't uh, at least for me it didn't feel like he has very much depth and so when a lot of people were saying oh these the three actors that play him across the different stages of his life they feel like the same person and it's like well obviously but it also it doesn't feel like it was that hard because he doesn't even really talk or interact that much. And so it didn't feel as uh, compelling as it could have been. I think there's definitely something Barry Jenkins is trying to say um, about at least masculinity, especially within the African-American community. And I respect that 100 percent. But for, I think, a lot of different reasons, the film just doesn't work for me because it just it kind of loses momentum after the first half because I wanted, as you did, I, I wanted more of Mahershala Ali. I think he was the centerpiece of the story. I think he was the most compelling. And when he was taken out, I think the film loses a lot of its uh, momentum. But overall, I think it's still a piece that's, at least for me, worth uh, revisiting, hopefully in the near future. Interesting. That's really interesting to hear all that. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year. And at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. The 
encourage my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My sense the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. All right, what was your number two film? Uh, my number two pick today is the 2017 film First Reform, directed by Paul Schrader. Uh, the synopsis of this reads, a pastor of a small church in upstate New York starts to spiral out of control after a soul-shaking encounter with an unstable environmental activist and his pregnant wife. When I saw when I first saw it, I it was it, I would I would call it a spiritual experience. Um, I think this Paul Schrader does an amazing job directing and writing. His previous work definitely reflects this film. He uh, worked on Scorsese, worked with Scorsese, having helped write the script for both Taxi Driver and uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. And I think uh, Paul Schrader's actual roots growing up as a Christian himself, uh, primarily Calvinist, definitely paints a picture in this film as the film deals with the ideas of faith and politics and how those mix. And I think it's especially, uh, I think it's a, it's a film that's especially needed in today's climate because it talks a lot about the issues going on in our world and how the church is addressing it, such as things like climate change and a lot of environmental things that need to be taken into account. But I think the real centerpiece of this film is Ethan Hawke's portrayal. I think it's his, uh, I think it's his best performance to date. And it's one of my favorite performances of the 2010s. He does such an amazing job as, uh, in the role as the Reverend, uh, Toller that he portrays in the film, giving a very nuanced performance of a man that is, has dealt with deep grief and he's learning a lot about the hypocrisy going on around him and the uh, and the need for uh, real reform to take pl- reform to take place. And I think it's exceptionally well done. Uh, it's just one of it's one of those films that when you watch it, there's there's so many scenes that ending scene where you don't know if what his outcome is. Is he is he damning himself to eternal damnation or is he in a way saving himself the way i i most want to read it is that in a sense he finds true grace at the end of it and the long road of searching uh has kind of led to some sort of answer for him and that and for all those reasons i think it's uh it's such a beautiful film and one that i think is definitely going to be talked about in many film circles for years to come that's a great reading of it. I really appreciated all you had to say about it. Uh, first and foremost, I'm I'm very mad that you actually picked this. I was hoping to be able to sneak this into my bottom five, but the fact that you were able were to draft this in the second spot made me mad. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's yeah, all right. Um, yeah, this this movie is so beautiful. I'm I'm not a religious person myself, and sort of was able to appreciate the the stance that. Uh, the Reverend was taking and one that I see myself taking as well, this sort of hypocrisy of, you know, if we were indeed put here on earth by God, why are we not taking care of the land and why are we purposely destroying it just for the sake of making some money? Because this, this, the main sort of, crux of the film is this idea that this oil company is donating large amounts of money to the much bigger church that sort of oversees the small one that Ethan Hawke manages and and just brings up so many great points of the way we should be looking at the world and interacting with it and appreciating the beauty that is all around us and for the most part, you know, 90% of this film is pretty straightforward and understandable and then that like last 10% of the movie where it sort of 
goes to this enlightened stage where you're not really too sure what's going on and you kind of have to interpret it based on your own feelings of everything. That's just the icing on the cake for me. Yes. I would also say the way, uh, uh, Schrader decides to handle the camera. I've looked into it. He's developed the whole idea of transcendental cinematography, which in a sense he used on earlier projects, uh, in a sense where the camera stays very static very minimal movements, but in a sense, the, the film doesn't need uh, complex camera work. I think the I think the camera is where it needs to be all the time, and it definitely gives a sense of uneasy dread at uh, what will lead to the eventual finale of the film. My number two film is Uncut Gems from 2019, directed by the Safdie brothers. A charismatic New York City jeweler, always on the lookout for the next big score, makes a series of high-stakes bets that could lead to the windfall of a lifetime. Howard must perform a precarious high-wire act, balancing business, family, and encroaching adversaries on all sides of, in his relentless pursuit of the ultimate win. This movie is phenomenal. We talked about Good Time just being so anxiety-inducing, and this movie basically cranks that up. This movie is basically figure out right now in your life what is the worst decision you can make, make it, and then from there, make the next worst decision, and then the next worst decision, and the next worst decision, and it just keeps going and going because Howie, played by Adam Sandler, just doesn't know how to make a good choice. Everything he does is wrong, and for some reason, that just keeps propelling him forward because he doesn't get discouraged. He will eventually get that right decision, and unfortunately for him, he does eventually get to that right decision. It's just, what is the cost of that? And it's just so fascinating to watch as you're basically having to cover your eyes and being like, no, why are you doing this? And it just keeps going and going and going. And you, this movie is basically cranked up to 50. I won't even say 11. This movie is cranked up to 50. It's just nonstop heart pounding, anxiety inducing, bad decisions, yelling, everything you can imagine that can go wrong, will go wrong. And that's basically this movie. And I loved it. I, I love it as well, and I think a lot of that credit can go towards uh, Sandler's absolutely fantastic performance. I think also the idea of the opal kind of being this symbol of almost dragon's gold. It's the idea, you know, people love shiny objects, and when you gaze upon stuff like that, it kind of it begins to corrupt your mind, and that's indeed what happens to Howard in his uh, relentless pursuit of uh, achieving whatever dreams he w- wants and has. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And and the two uh, women in his life, Julia Fox and Idina Menzel, both are sort of the yin and yang of trying to control him while also being supportive at the same time and enabling him as well. It's just so interesting how sort of everything comes together. All right, Royce, what is your number one film? My number one uh, pick is the 2015 film, The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers. Uh, The synopsis reads, In 1630s New England, William and Catherine lead a devout Christian life with five children, homesteading on the edge of an impassable wilderness, exiled from their settlement when William defies the local church. When their newborn son vanishes and crops mysteriously fail, the family turns on one another. Now, why I actually have this in my top spot is it was the most effective film on on me out of all of A24's filmography. It was definitely an experience that definitely rocked me to my core. I would go so far as to say it's the the scariest film I've ever seen in my life. And that's coming – in my defense, I I haven't seen too many 
uh, horror films per se, but in the growing amount I have, uh, I think the most disturbing aspect of this film is the location and the ideas it's presenting. It's presenting the idea, as Robert Akers was saying, what, his main goal when he was writing this was it was meant to be a Puritan nightmare. And I think what he conveys that so well through this film. I, I what, The highest praise I can give to Robert Akers really is his devotion to his material. First and foremost, before he's a filmmaker, is he's a historian. And this can be shown by both this film and The Lighthouse. He does an immaculate job at laying out a landscape of what life was during that time. He does an amazing job researching the era and the time period that's going on, as well as... Uh, as well as all of, uh, you know, finding period-accurate period dialogue and from doing constant research and making these screenplays that make you feel like you've been transported back into that time. But the most terrifying element of the film to me is this idea of isolation. The, the father, uh, played by, uh, I believe his name was uh, Ralph Ensign, uh, the whole cast really, Anna Taylor-Joy, uh, Kate Dickel, amazing cast as this family that decides to they they're essentially excommunicated from their puritan commune and are in a sense sent into the wilderness away uh from everything they hold dear and essentially uh they're terrorized by a witch and you don't know if there's anything supernatural or not going on until the closing moments which is this it's the scariest moment ever depicted uh that I've ever seen in my life, really. And, and I, I could be ra- I could rave on and on about this film. But I, I think what the scariest element is it plays with the idea of how family can turn on each other so easily and how religion can kind of get into that and how it can how when you don't you aren't surrounded by a good circle of people, how easily people can fall. And I think. I think uh, the the score, the cinematography, the acting—they all build up to being one of the mo- the most unsettling experience uh, in uh, in recent years. And I th- and think, in my opinion, A twenty four's greatest film. That's interesting. That yeah, I, I appreciated the the mood setting that it was trying to do. I really liked all that. It it wasn't as scary for me as Hereditary was, but I, I loved how everything was about dread and the fear of the unknown and so much was building off of that. They did a great job with that. And Anya Taylor-Joy was a a terrific lead in this, sort of showcasing this young girl who is sort of being forced into womanhood a little too early and trying to understand everything that's going on while, while still supporting and being there for her family. And I love the analogy of how the woods kind of symbolize uh, a, a darkness. There's a, there's a darkness and evil out there, but by the film's end, how accepting the main character uh, played by Anya Taylor is kind of because she's uh, she's become so distant from her family. The evil, the thing she once called evil is the thing that might both be the most accepting thing in her life. I always come back to the old house. What if it's empty? What if we just peeked inside? We could throw parties. You can put on one of your plays. We can yell. It is this house. Our old house. That's not your old house and that's not your neighbor. And so for my number one film is The Last Black Man in San Francisco from 2019, directed by Joe Talbot. 
Jimmy Fails' dream of reclaiming the Victorian home his grandfather built in the heart of San Francisco. Joined on his quest by his best friend, Mont, Jimmy searches for the beginning, the belonging in a rapidly changing city that seems to have left them behind. This film, there isn't a ton that happens. Really, the plot that I described is the plot. It's about these two young men who are trying to reclaim a home and work on improving it, bringing it back to its old glory. But it's so much more. This is about life and death and family and history and your place in the world and gentrification and all this sort of stuff that both is an experience unique to both black people and people of color, but also to everyone as we're watching the world change and pass us by and we don't know where we fit in anymore. This might be the single most beautifully shot film I have ever witnessed. Uh, for anyone that's a big fan of the movie Columbus by Koganada, this is very similar where you get beautiful shots of architecture and angles and color and sunsets and beautiful faces. This, this movie is just seeping with beauty and love. And there's one scene in particular where Mont, who is a playwright, writes this one-man show after the death of someone that they know and how he basically transports this whole world of everything that he's experiencing right now from the house to the friend dying and what's going on in San Francisco. It just had me absolutely in tears in a way that I had not experienced before. This movie was just so heartfelt. I know not everyone went for it because it's a bit of a slow burn, but for me, this is like the epitome of filmmaking. Well, you've definitely convinced me to watch it because sadly I haven't yet. I'm actually going to try watching it this weekend, but if it's everything you've described, it definitely sounds like a sure win in my book. Yeah, it really is is one that you you need to see and, and sort of go in expecting to not be super plot heavy and, and allowing it to just sort of overtake you with emotions. Um, it's got some great scenes of just skateboarding through San Francisco that happen in slow motion that just show the beauty of the camera and everything that's going on. And, and one that I really appreciate everything that's happening. Uh, and I'm really excited to see what Joe Talbot does next and along with the two leads as well both of them were, were absolutely fantastic um jimmy fails plays him a version of himself and then jonathan majors plays his friend mont so this is one that if you haven't seen it's super underseen by most people i highly recommend that you check out overall i hope everyone enjoyed these lists of our top 10 films i'm going to include them uh, on social media on the show notes uh, but royce thank you so much for sharing your list of your favorite a24 films yeah, thank you so much for having me once again. It's been a really fun experience. Well, fantastic. Well, I hope this isn't the last time that you come on. Oh, I, yeah, I would look forward to it, yes. If you're going to San Francisco Be sure to wear some flowers in your Once again, thank you, Royce, for coming on and for everyone that participated in the survey. If you haven't listened to the last show that covers the history of A24, I highly suggest you go back and check it out. I got some wonderful feedback that I'd like to share. Friend of the show, Callum McNabb, from the Scare-Traducing podcast said, Crazy just how consistent they've been and how quickly they've rose to become almost cliche for cinephiles. Can't wait to hear your top tens. There's more than enough quality material to have debates, etc., but as a Glasgowian, sorry, I apologize for messing that up, 
watching ScarJo wander around Buchanan Gallery Shopping Center undetected is so violently joyous and surreal, despite the overt realism and the almost gonzo-slash-docu-style of the movie. It really is hard to comprehend exactly how Under the Skin makes me feel, but it's got to be my A24 number one because there's nothing like it. I just finished the novel. I can't fathom how Glazer created what he did from the source material. Thank you, Callum. I also got a really nice message from Jacob Romero, who reached out on Instagram and said, I'm a huge A24 fan. I just listened to your podcast. Holy moly. Let me just say, I had chills. The way it was edited. The sounds from Moonlight and Room. Man, oh man, I was remembering all my favorite moments. It's amazing how film moves us. Definitely will be sending an email about my favorite film. Amazing job. Keep it up. Well, Jacob, I hope to get an email from you, and I will include any other feedback you have on a future episode. ContraZoom is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I'd like to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. What is your favorite A24 films? Send me an email, ContraZoomPod at gmail.com, and I'll include your message in a future episode. It would be a great help if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, as it will help us grow and find new listeners. Thank you for listening.